Which is more important, knowing the Bible intellectually or applying it to our lives? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for downloading this message today. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Monday, August the 30th of 2010, and I'm your host, as always, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a blessing to have you guys here with us, and it's almost September. It's finally starting to uh, starting to cool off here a little bit. I know that for, I don't know, probably about three weeks there, I had to take a little layoff from running where I was really, you know, doing my running, my training for, uh, you know, I'm training for a marathon and I really had to put my training down to an inconsistent basis because it was just so unbelievably hot and humid here in, uh, in Northwest Arkansas. Uh, you know, at like nine o'clock at night, it would be like 95% humidity and, and, you know, 90 something degrees. And, uh, let me just tell you that kills, uh, endurance when it's that hot and that humid. So anyway, in the past week, it seems like uh, the humidity's kind of tapered off, which has been kind of nice. So I've started running again. Uh, I don't have the endurance that I did a couple months ago when I uh, when I ran a half marathon, but uh, you know it, it'll come back and uh, it just gives me a, a better workout in less time, right? So. <laughs> Anyway, hey, I wanted to ask you guys, um, if you guys have checked out the National Apologetics Conference for this year, uh, of course, my my seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary, uh, has hosted the National Apologetics Conference for several years, uh, for at least the past, I don't know, seven, eight years, maybe more than that, uh, at least since the first year that I went there. And it used to be the SES uh, National Apologetics Conference. Now it's Alex McFarland's conference. National Apologetics Conference, and of course he's the the new president of Southern Evangelical Seminary. But uh, I don't know, I was looking at the lineup for the conference, and there are some great apologists on there, Uh, don't get me wrong, Uh, you know, Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell, Chuck Colson, uh, Gary Habermas, you know, there are some great, great um, theologians in there, apologists in there. But there are also uh, a few people down toward the end of the list, I guess, uh, there were a few names that I didn't recognize. And when I looked them up, I realized that these were all people that I had seen before on, on like Fox News, right? On uh, Bill O'Reilly's show, uh, which is totally politically motivated. And so I have to admit that, uh, I don't know, I was a little bit disappointed to see that it looks like they're taking a little bit more of a political spin this year with the conference than than I'm comfortable with. And I'm, I'm just the type of person, I'm not real comfortable mixing politics and religion necessarily because it really does create some confusion. Uh, I am conservative, but I wouldn't consider myself a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. Uh, let me give you an example of this. A few months ago at Liberty University's graduation in May, uh, they had Glenn Beck come and speak. And of course, Glenn Beck is uber conservative, right? Uh, I think he's Libertarian Party or whatever, but he's, he's very conservative, you know, big name on Fox News and everything. But here's the problem. While it looks like 
Uh, he's just like us, and he likes to talk about God and country and all that. And so it looks like he's just like us. But in actuality, he is part of a cult. He's a Mormon. And so when he talks about Jesus, when he talks about God, especially when he talks about God and country, uh, he's using language that's very, very deceptive. Uh, He doesn't mean what we interpret him to be saying, because their definition, Mormon's definition of, uh, of God or Jesus uh, they, they have a different definition. They're on a different page. They're speaking kind of a code language. And so I have a real problem with Liberty having Glenn Beck uh, speak at the graduation. He's politically conservative, yes, but he's not a Christian. Another example of, of something similar, I guess, would be uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean. They are part of a cult as well. Each one of them goes to a Oneness Pentecostal church. In fact, they're all pastors in the Oneness Pentecostal cult, which denies the Trinity, and they deny uh, the the sufficiency of grace. It's a very legalistic cult. And John Brown University, that's the, the big Christian university here in Northwest Arkansas, they're hosting Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Now see, Phillips, Craig, and Dean seem to affirm the things that we affirm, but theologically speaking, we're on a different page. When they're speaking about Jesus and Father, they're speaking about a different Jesus and a different Father than we do. So, anyway... I don't know. I'll leave that one up to you guys, but I just wanted to put that out there that the National Apologetics Conference is going to be held, uh, you know, at the end of November or beginning of November. But uh, I don't know. Check it out. And I'm curious about what you guys think. So anyway, uh, real quick, just to let you guys know, at the end here, we're going to be playing the Ken Ferguson Band. Check them out, kingdomtunes.com, and you can get their music for free on iTunes. Anyway, we've got a lesson to do here. Let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. Father God, we do thank you so much just for bringing us this far in this study. Lord, I pray that you will teach us how to respond to what you've taught us in the three and a half years we've been doing this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are few things that are more important than the way a follower of Jesus lives their life. Now, some may argue with that, saying that, you know, we're under grace and God is sovereign, and so the message that our lives sends to the world is, to, uh, to a large extent, just insignificant. I'd have to argue with that type of ideology. I'd, I'd argue that it's naive. I've seen churches do nothing but teach doctrine, not application, just doctrine, and fail to teach the congregation to apply the word of God to their lives. And the result is usually the same, frozen chosen syndrome. What's that? Well, frozen chosen syndrome is a sickness that spreads in the church, which is characterized by a lack of care or compassion or outreach for the lost. The church, which is infested with this sickness, sees no need to reach out to the community. They see no need to go out and uh, and evangelize because they think that outreach is unnecessary. Instead, they'll argue that, well, you know, God is sovereign, and if he wants to bring people to their church, he will. So frozen chosen syndrome is also characterized by a diminishing number of people attending the church, which seems odd if God is going to be the only one that brings people to the church. Friends, we've been entrusted with the second greatest responsibility in the entire universe. And I'm being dead serious. We've been entrusted with the second greatest responsibility in the entire universe. The greatest responsibility is God's, right? To provide a means for saving the lost. 
Well, he's done his part. The second greatest responsibility in the entire universe, which is on the shoulders of every single follower of Jesus, is to let the lost know that they don't have to continue living in a state of spiritual death. Yes, the God who saved is the God who tells us, as his followers, that as we're going through life, we're supposed to be continuing his work. In a sense, yes, this is also the responsibility that God has, but he has chosen to do that work, the work of proclaiming salvation to the lost, through the lives and through the mouths of his people. That's us. Yes, it's through both our lives and mouths that people should understand that there's a spring of life overflowing from within us. Jesus told his followers that they're supposed to be, what, a city on a hill. Anybody ever heard that? A city on a hill. A city on a hill is something that people see from a distance, and they're drawn to it. That's what our lives are supposed to be like. Once the lost are drawn to us, we have the responsibility to share the good news with them. But we have to do so in a loving way. But there are some serious, serious obstacles which get in our way when it comes to proclaiming the gospel, the good news, that we don't have to live in a state of spiritual death anymore. And one of those obstacles shows up when followers of Jesus don't care if they are completely offensive with the lost when they're presenting the gospel to them. They'll say, oh, the gospel by its very nature is offensive to the natural man. Yes, but here's the thing. The gospel, the gospel itself is offensive to the natural man. I don't deny that for a second, but that doesn't mean that we should be offensive. It's okay for us to let the gospel itself offend them, but it's not okay for us to be rude and offensive. When the gospel becomes a sales pitch that gives someone the impression that we're just kind of hustling them for some brownie points with God or whatever, it's offensive. It's rude. We've got to care about them. What's not offensive to people is knowing that we love them and value our friendship with them, whether they put their trust in Jesus or not. So that's one obstacle. A more important obstacle, and maybe even a bigger obstacle, is when the message our lips tell and the message our lives tell don't line up. This past weekend, my wife and I went to see the movie The Last Exorcism, and I don't think I'd necessarily recommend it for anyone and everyone. It does have some pretty disturbing themes and some some really scary scenes in there, but there's no foul language. Uh, The story starts out with the audience realizing that the movie is being done from a documentarian's perspective, much like, uh, you know, if you've ever seen the Blair Witch Project, you know, it's kind of done like from a first-person perspective almost. It doesn't take long for the audience who's watching The Last Exorcism to realize that this pastor is doing the documentary because he's sick and tired of pretending to believe in God when he's really either agnostic or an atheist. So he's ready to bring it all to an end, and he jokes about moving on to be an insurance salesman. And so as as part of the documentary that he's doing, he agrees to take the crew along with him to show how gullible Christ followers are. And so uh, they all go with him to this exorcism that he gets invited to to prove that it's all just a hoax. It's all just a big act. And he does things like uh, piping sounds of demons into the room while he's doing the, the, uh, the exorcism and filling a crucifix with, I don't know, some kind of chemical that when released causes the crucifix to emit smoke. And of course, this turns out to be a legitimate case of demonic possession. And the pastor in the story is faced with confronting his worldview. Is he going to continue to think that it's a psychological or a psychiatric issue? Or 
Is he going to accept it for what it really is, a girl who's possessed by a demonic spirit? Now, I won't give you guys any spoilers here. Uh, If you want to know how it turns out, go and see it for yourselves, if you can withstand how scary it is. But the point that the movie's making, the message behind the movie, so to speak, is that if you're going to talk the talk, you'd better also walk the walk. Because sooner or later, your secret atheism, if you're really not believing will come into the light, and you'll be exposed as a fraud. Now, the purpose of Scripture is not just academic knowledge. It's practical application. It's life transformation. You know what? Even Satan knows the Bible. Did you know that? But James reminds us that even demons who know the Bible don't believe it. You see, it's possible to know the Bible inside and out, backwards and forwards, and yet not see the Bible have even the least amount of impact on your life. What we know will not transform our lives. What we believe will. Let me say that again. Please listen to me. What we know will not transform our lives. What we believe will. That's something that all of us, all of us, myself included, have to be constantly mindful of. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's not important to know the Bible and to understand what the Bible teaches. Some people would go so far as to say that our actions are more important than our knowledge and understanding, and some people go to the opposite end of the spectrum, and they'd say that our knowledge and understanding is more important. So which is it? Well, it's both. It's not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and proposition. And I think that Paul would agree that talking the talk is great, but we also must learn to walk the walk. People will believe what they see before they believe what you say. And it's with that in mind that Paul progresses in his letter to the church at Rome. He's just finished this discourse on Israel, uh, a parenthetical portion of this book, which began at the beginning of chapter 9 and ended with the last verse of chapter 11. So with all that in mind, Paul starts off chapter 12, writing in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, let's just go ahead and stop there. The word therefore (laughs) It works like a hinge. It connects two objects, one of which depends necessarily on the solid foundation of the first. For example, if you'll imagine trying to hang a door on a hinge, which connected to a frame which wasn't sturdy, the door obviously wouldn't work, right? Likewise, what Paul is moving toward here hinges on the sturdiness of the foundation that he's already created. So with that in mind, we have to understand that this section of text, starting with Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and moving forward, this section of the text applies only to committed followers of Jesus. If you don't accept or agree with anything between chapters 1 and 8, you're free to listen or read along, but this doesn't apply to you. So what is this therefore, therefore? Well, Let's go on back and take a look at it. We see that the second chapter of Romans also opened with a therefore, which draws a conclusion based on the previous verses. The previous verses from chapter 1 demonstrated that humanity is what? Is depraved. Not only depraved, deeply depraved and intentionally sinful. The first and second chapters of Romans reveal people to be filled with a spirit of outright rebellion against God, with not only a penchant for sinning, but a love for their sin. We're not only sinful by nature, we're also sinful by choice and intention. So these first two chapters present the reality of the universal human condition. Universal 
Yes, everyone. This rebellion is so common among all people and all cultures around the world that it's actually reported that when a Hindu man in India first read the first two two chapters of Romans, he nodded his head and said, the writer of this pamphlet must have lived in India. No, Paul didn't live in India. He probably never went to India. But the condition of humanity in India is the same as the condition of humanity in Jerusalem, which is the same condition of humanity in the Australian outback, the Amazon jungle, or the entire North American or European continents. No matter where you are, no matter where you live or what culture you come from, the first two chapters of Romans describes who you were prior to Jesus perfectly. In these two chapters, we saw that even though all of humanity is fallen and depraved, God's existence was evident enough, it was obvious enough for anyone and everyone to notice and to know something about him. Because there's enough evidence of his existence for anyone to notice, people are held responsible for whether they turn to him or not. Now, this description hits a peak in chapter 3 when Paul tells us that nobody seeks God. That's how self-centered and egotistical we are by nature. That's how self-righteous we are. We wouldn't even look beyond the tip of our own noses for help if God didn't step in and do something. And so God stepped in and did something. In fact, as Paul told us, God didn't just do something. He did everything that needed to be done to save us. He showed us his incredible and unfathomably great mercy by sending his only son to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. Only Jesus could have sufficiently paid the price for all of humanity's sin because only Jesus had an infinite nature and thus an infinite worth. And anyone who denies the idea that Jesus' death is sufficient to atone for the sins of all of humanity an infinite number of times over is also necessarily denying the infinite worth of Jesus. Only the death of Jesus as the unblemished Lamb of God could appease God's wrath against all sin. Paul then went on to discuss how we can have that atonement applied to us on an individual level in the fourth chapter in which he clearly demonstrated that it's only by faith, it's by faith alone that God's grace is given to us. It's only by trusting in Jesus that his work on Calvary restores our broken relationship with God. The mercy of God isn't something that can be uh, can be earned, and thus God's mercy is never deserved. It's never owed to anyone. Instead, we see that it's a free gift to anyone who will receive it by trusting in Jesus. In the fifth chapter, Paul spent time explaining why why it is that peace with God is only available through trusting Jesus. And Paul goes into detail about how Adam's sinful nature was passed on to his offspring. And he ended the chapter with a brief discussion on the purpose of the law of Moses, telling us that the law was given so that transgression would increase. And finally, we saw that no matter how great the transgressions of humanity might be, God's mercies will always be greater. Then in chapter 6, Paul explained how we were saved. We died with Christ, and we were thereby grafted into him in such a way that we became indistinguishable from him in God's eyes. In a similar way to how all of humanity was in Adam, now all believers are in Christ. With our old selves dead and our new life in Christ, Paul started to instruct us on how to live as new creations in Christ Jesus, telling us that we were born as slaves to sin, but that we now have a new master. We were bought at a price, and that should affect our lives. That's why Paul told us to present ourselves as instruments of righteousness. It's because we now have 
a choice to do that. We couldn't help but sin before, but now, now that we're in Jesus, we have the ability to turn away from sin. But that doesn't mean that we're still under the law of Moses, as Paul made clear in chapter 7. We were married to the law, Paul told us, and because our old selves died, we were thereby able to to be judicially separated from the law. Our righteousness is in Christ and not of ourselves and not in our obedience to the law. Now, because we're now united with Christ, Paul took chapter 8 as an opportunity to tell us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Given our new condition, our new lives, Paul wanted us to understand that there is no going back. Because we're spiritually unified with Christ and have this new nature because we have a new master, there's nothing that can ever, ever separate us from him again. There's nothing that can get in the way of our relationship with him. It's a permanent condition. He won't let us go. See, a slave doesn't determine whether the master can or will sell him off again, and Jesus won't sell us back to our old master of sin. We're permanently unified with him. We permanently belong to him. The old is gone, the new has come. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Our old selves, who we were before Jesus, our old selves are dead, and we don't have the power to resurrect our old selves from the dead. Our new nature is a permanent one, and based on that, Paul concluded chapter 8 with one of the most triumphant passages in all of Scripture, telling us that nothing, nothing will ever separate us from God again. Now, these are all points that Paul demonstrated. These are all points that he went through, and he met the objections, and he proved it. The doorframe, then, is solidly built. The door frame, which prepares a sturdy foundation for the hinge to be placed. So if you accept everything that Paul has covered up to this point, if you really believe all of this to be true, not just know it, but if you believe it all to be true, then your life should be and will be transformed. It'll be changed. So therefore, therefore what, Paul? Well, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Friends, the principle to catch here is that if you really believe that God, not just know that God, if you really believe that God, in his incredible love and mercy toward us, has bought you, at the greatest price and has taken up residence within you, if you really believe that you belong to him now, then we should present ourselves to him. Our lives are now in Jesus and everything that we do, every choice we make, every practice we have should flow out of our new relationship with him. The old selves that we once had were intent on self-glorification, but the result of our new nature as new creations in Christ Jesus gives us a new purpose in life, a purpose of bringing glory, honor, and praise to God, not only with our lips, but just as importantly, with our lives as well. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you so much just for who you are, for being a God who is incredibly merciful, merciful beyond our wildest imagination, infinitely great. We thank you so much, Lord, for loving us the way that you do and for showing us mercy the way that you have. 
Lord, we do ask that you would help us apply these truths to our lives. And Lord, if there are some who are struggling with belief, I pray that you would help those of us who are experiencing disbelief regarding your promises, regarding our position. Lord, we thank you that you have unified us with yourself, that you see us the way that you see your own son. We thank you, Lord, for your love, for saving us, for buying us, for doing what needed to be done. Lord, I pray that you will teach us to make our lives reflect the love that we've been shown. May our lives bring glory, honor, and praise to you because we love you and belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus, my light in this crazy world. This is the kingdom, and you are the power. I trade all I have for this precious pearl. I am a saint, but I've been a sinner. I've been a loser, and I've been a winner. But what I am is a child of God. So who really cares what I am? Because you are so much better. Thank you for the victory that you won. 